Everyone loves to listen to a good book, and there are so many wonderful ones to choose, so we decided to bring you this podcast of Stories Come to Life. Each episode features a story from either classic or modern literature, especially chosen to be interesting and exciting to hear. So sit back, relax, and listen to this story come to life. Welcome to Stories Come to Life. I am your host, Catherine Lopez Luker. It is with great pleasure that I am able to announce that Simon & Schuster Publishing Company has given permission for this book to be read out loud and shared on Stories Come to Life until June 30th, 2024. But of course, the episodes that fall under that special permission will all be taken down on that date, so listen now while they're available. If Nancy Drew is anything, she is a good friend to those in need. Emily Crandall certainly needs a good friend to help restore her inheritance and, if possible, clear her guardian, Mrs. Willoughby, from suspicion of the jewel theft. Nancy is doing all she can, even following the tiniest whiff of a clue, no matter where it leads. But is Nancy brave or is she foolhardy? when she sneaks into the dilapidated house in Dockville, where three hardened criminals are discussing their latest heist. Now sit back, relax, and listen to this story come to life. Nancy Drew and the Mystery at Lilac Inn Chapter 16 The Stranger Nancy Drew, hoping that she had hit upon a genuine clue at last, determined to lose no time in gathering evidence concerning Mary Mason. Yet, in considering her next move, she scarcely knew how to proceed. Probably it would prove futile to question the girl, but she decided to try the method at last. Deciding not to wait until after luncheon, she hurried out to her roadster. She started the motor but before she could pull away, Mrs. Carter thrust her head out of the front window and called to her. Miss Nancy, if you're going downtown, will you stop at the corner grocery and see why they haven't delivered the things I ordered? All right, I will, Nancy promised, though she would have preferred not to have been detained. Reaching the neighborhood store, she stopped to do the errand. Upon being assured that the groceries would be delivered immediately, she went back to the roadster. She was just stepping into it again when her attention was attracted to a man who was walking down the opposite side of the street. Ordinarily, she would not have given a stranger a second glance, but there was something about this man that commanded her attention. It was not his clothing which held her eyes, though he was dressed in a flashy suit, but rather his entire bearing. The man walked with an exaggerated swagger, which unmistakably marked him as a tough. From where she stood, Nancy Drew could not see the hard facial lines, but quite without realizing it, she took note of the man's hooked nose. Walking rapidly, the stranger continued down the street. Watching him more from curiosity than anything else, Nancy was about to turn away, when she saw something white flutter from his pocket. Oh, 
He lost something, she thought. Perhaps it's an important letter. I'd better run after him and tell him. She dashed across the street and snatched up the bit of white. To her disappointment, it was only an old envelope, which the stranger had dropped. Sold that time, Nancy laughed. She was on the verge of tossing the envelope into one of the garbage cans along the side of the road when she noticed that it bore a name and address written in a cramped hand. She scanned it carelessly and her eyes opened wider. <gasps> the name was Mr. B. Mason and the address was a street in Dockville. Mason! I wonder if he can be any relation to Mary Mason. Startled at the thought, she glanced down the street and was just in time to see the man turn at the corner. I wonder where he's going, she questioned. I believe I'll see if I can find out. Hurrying after the man, she turned the corner and again caught sight of him. Though she walked as swiftly as she could, she found it impossible to overtake him. I believe he's heading for the interurban station, she decided. Nancy had guessed correctly. A moment later, the stranger turned in at the station, disappearing inside the building. It will be simple to find out where he's going, Nancy told herself. I'll just saunter inside the station myself and wait until he buys his ticket. However, her plans were not destined to be carried into effect, for at that moment, a long, piercing whistle reached her ears. The people standing on the platform began to gather up their packages and baggage, and the stranger, who had just entered the station, came hurrying out. Obviously, he had not had sufficient time to purchase a ticket. Nancy began to run. She reached the tracks almost breathless and dashed across to the platform only an instant before the interurban cars thundered into the station. All aboard, the conductor shouted. The stranger was one of the first to enter the coach. Oh, I'd give a nickel to know where he's going, Nancy thought desperately. I know he didn't have time to buy a ticket. All aboard, the conductor called again, glancing inquiringly at her. I feel it in my bones he's some relation to Mary Mason. There wouldn't be more than one Mason family in Dockville, Nancy went on to herself. If I let him get away, I may have passed up a valuable clue. She came to with a start as she saw that the train was slowly moving out of the station. Forced to a sudden decision, she ran forward and impulsively swung herself upon the last coach. The deed done, she considered her action with a little misgiving. What a foolish thing to do, she accused herself. I probably won't have enough money to take me to where that man is going and I'll land in some town stranded. Then Dad will have to come after me, and I'll get the parental ha-ha. The train was still moving slowly, and Nancy could have changed her mind. But though she was not certain that she had done a wise thing, she had no intention of turning back. Walking through the train, she caught sight of the stranger and slid into a seat directly behind him. The man picked up a newspaper and fell to reading. Peering over his shoulder, Nancy Drew observed that he turned to a page on which there was a reference to the Willoughby robbery. He read the item through and then tossed the paper aside. 
Presently, the conductor came into the coach, taking up tickets. Confronted with a situation which might prove embarrassing, Nancy Drew dug down into her pocketbook. By rounding up all the nickels and dimes, she found that she had exactly $6.85. Not a great deal, but perhaps it would take her as far as she wanted to go. To her relief, the conductor paused before the stranger before coming to her. She heard the man explain that he had not had time to buy a ticket. Where to, then? the conductor demanded gruffly. Winchester. In relief, Nancy settled back into her seat. Winchester was a large city some fifty miles from River Heights. She knew she would have enough money to take her there and back easily. When the conductor came to her, she had her cash fare ready and received her ticket without attracting the attention of the man she was following. Oh, I hope he doesn't discover I'm trailing him, she thought. If he does, I won't learn a thing. The man did not pay the slightest attention to her, but stared out of the window with a blank expression. Sometime later, when the porter called Winchester, he sprang to his feet and hurried down the aisle to be one of the first out of the coach. Nancy followed as closely as she dared, but nearly lost him in the crowd on the station platform. To her relief, the man did not call a taxi, but set off on foot. Again he walked rapidly, and it was all she could do to keep him in sight. Nancy Drew had frequently visited Winchester, and in general was familiar with the city. She had not walked far until she became aware that the stranger was leading her into the poorer section, a district frequented by pawnbrokers, fences, criminals, and down-and-outers. Once the man she was following glanced around, and for a moment Nancy thought that she must have been seen, but as he continued again, she decided that she had been mistaken. She saw the man turn a corner and hurried faster so as not to lose sight of him. Turning the same corner a moment later, she found to her amazement that he had vanished. Now, where could he have gone so quickly, she asked herself. He couldn't have dodged into an alley, for there isn't one close. The only alternative was that the man had entered one of the pawnbroker shops along the street. I'll wait until he comes out, Nancy decided with a chuckle. Then, after he's out of sight, I'll go in myself and give the pawnbroker the third degree. Who knows, I may track down those jewels this very afternoon. Nancy waited patiently for twenty minutes, and then, because she was attracting attention, she crossed the street and walked a short distance only to retrace her steps. She waited another fifteen minutes, and still the stranger did not appear. I guess I've lost him, Nancy told herself in disgust. He probably saw that I was following him and decided to give me the slip. No use waiting any longer. Because she was not willing to give up easily, she entered several of the pawnbroker shops on the street and inquired if a man answering the description had been seen. Usually, her polite question was answered with an indifferent shrug of the shoulders, and at last Nancy decided that she was just wasting her time. All the same, I believe that man went into one of those places, she thought, as she slowly made her way back to the interurban station. If only I had been a trifle more alert, 
I might have found out something important. Reaching the station, Nancy consulted a timetable and found that a train for River Heights would leave in ten minutes. She bought her ticket and sat down to wait, discouraged at the turn her adventure had taken. Well, I don't consider the time wholly wasted anyway, she defended herself. I'm more than ever convinced that I'm on a track that will get me somewhere. Tomorrow I'll drive to Dockville and see Mary Mason, and if she isn't willing to tell me what I want to know, I'll find a way to make her tell. I must solve that mystery of Lila Kin. Chapter 17 A Crisis It was late in the afternoon when Nancy Drew reached River Heights after her unsuccessful trip to Winchester. Finding her roadster where she had parked it in front of the grocery, she drove directly to her father's office, for she was eager to tell him everything she had learned. As the door to the inner office was open, she walked in without being announced. "'Hello, Nancy,' Mr. Drew greeted her. "'I'm mighty happy you dropped in. I've been trying to get you all afternoon. Mrs. Carter said she thought you had gone to Dockville.' I did intend to go there, but something else came up. Did you want to see me about anything special? Yes, I've been called out of town unexpectedly. It's about that Merrill case, and I'm afraid I can't put it off. I should get back tomorrow afternoon at the latest. When does your train leave? 6.45. That doesn't give you much time. No, but my bag is packed. I have it here, and now that I've seen you... I'll leave directly from the office. I'm sorry to run off when you're in such a mix-up about that Willoughby case. Oh, I'll get along all right, Nancy replied. She decided not to bother her father with the story of her afternoon's adventure. I'll help you all I can when I get back, Carson Drew promised, as he tossed a number of unread letters into a pigeonhole and locked the desk. Things probably won't come to a crisis for several days anyway. Glancing at his watch, he arose from his desk and hastily gathered up hat and traveling bag. I'll drive you to the station, Nancy offered. Fine. I think we'd better leave at once, because I want to get a Pullman ticket, and I haven't a reservation. Mr. Drew made a last survey of the room to make sure that he had forgotten nothing. As he turned toward the door, the telephone jangled. Hang it all, he exclaimed impatiently. It would have to ring when I'm in a hurry. Dropping the bag, he snatched up the receiver. Hello? Yes, this is Carson Drew. What's that? Nancy recognized the tense quality to her father's voice and glanced at him in startled surprise. She saw by the expression on his face that the telephone message was disturbing. Carson Drew held the receiver to his ear for what seemed to Nancy at least five minutes. Then he said, Thanks, William, for tipping me off. And he hung up. When he turned to his daughter, his face was grave. Well, this changes everything, he said quietly. What does? Jake Williams just called. He has a way of knowing what's going on at the police station, and when he thinks I'd be interested, he passes the information along to me. He just gave me a tip on the Willoughby case. Things have come to a crisis sooner than I expected. What do you mean? Nancy inquired anxiously. 
The police intend to put Mrs. Willoughby under arrest tomorrow morning. What evidence have they against her? Purely circumstantial. I don't see how they can do it. Well, they intend to anyway. Jake tells me the police quizzed her for three hours straight this afternoon. And she admitted that on the day before the robbery, she had visited the bank vault where the Crandall jewels were kept. Then on the following day, she drove to the bank with Mrs. Potter and they took the jewels away with them. Naturally, the admission makes it look bad for Mrs. Willoughby. The police think she went to the bank alone to substitute fake jewels for the real ones. Undoubtedly. Nancy frowned. Even if she did take the jewels, which I hate to believe, that doesn't explain what became of the handbag, which disappeared at Lila Ginn. No, it doesn't. Isn't there something we can do to prevent them from arresting her? I'm afraid not. Unless the mystery can be solved before tomorrow morning. And that's impossible, of course. If I were going to be here tonight, I'd see what I can do. But as it is, I'm afraid we'll have to let matters take their course. Unless you want me to call in a detective. Oh, don't do that, Nancy pleaded. Give me one more day. I made another discovery today that I think may have a direct bearing on the case. I'm sure I can work this thing out alone. All right, Mr. Drew agreed. Do what you can while I am away, and after that, if need be, we can turn the case over to a detective. Now I have to hurry or I'll miss my train. Nancy drove her father to the station, on the way telling him all that she had learned in Winchester. Mr. Drew seemed impressed by the story. I think perhaps you're on the right trail, he told her approvingly. After Mr. Drew's train had pulled out of the station, Nancy walked slowly back to her roadster, more thoughtful than ever. It was nearly seven o'clock, but as the sun did not set until later, it was still light. I'll drive over to Dockville right now, she decided impetuously. If I wait until tomorrow, I may miss Mary entirely. Once her mind was made up, she did not lose a second. In her enthusiasm for the adventure before her, she had cast a casual glance at the sky and had failed to notice the angry black clouds directly overhead. As she drove along, she did think that the air was unusually heavy and that it was rapidly growing darker, but she attributed it to the late hour. Reaching Dockville, Nancy drove to the house where she had last seen Mary Mason. Approaching the river, she was alarmed to run into a misty fog, which made it difficult for her to see where she was going. At last, she made out the Mason house, but wisely stopped half a block down the street to park. Alighting from the car, she glanced up at the sky for the first time and noticed the gathering murkiness. I believe there's going to be a storm, she thought uncomfortably. Glancing toward the west, she saw that the sun was setting behind a bank of black clouds. In a very few minutes it would be dark. Nancy glanced toward the old house and involuntarily shuddered. Though she was not afraid of Mary Mason, she preferred to meet her in broad daylight. The old house, which from the front appeared deserted, was not an inviting place to visit after dark. Nancy walked swiftly up the street and paused to survey the dilapidated house. 
Had she not seen Mary enter the building, she would not have believed it possible that such a place was inhabited. It's evident the girl doesn't want anyone to know she lives here, Nancy thought. She was about to go up to the front door when a sudden thought came to her. Walking to the back of the house, she surveyed the yard curiously. It sloped down to the river, and Nancy was quick to see a path leading from the house to the waterfront. Following it, she came to an improvised dock. Oh, I'm sure this path has been used recently, she reasoned. Otherwise, it would be overgrown with weeds. I wonder who has been landing at this old dock. The faint chug-chug of a motorboat caused her to glance out toward the river. Some distance down the stream, she saw a high-powered boat cutting through the water and apparently heading for the very spot where she was standing. Quickly, she stepped back into the tall bushes. That motorboat is coming toward this very dock, she told herself excitedly. Crouching low in the brush, which afforded a perfect shield from the river, she waited expectantly. The noise of the motor became louder as the boat approached, and then suddenly the engine was throttled. Overpowered by curiosity, Nancy cautiously peeped out from her hiding place. She saw that the boat was drifting slowly up toward the dock. There were three persons visible in the craft, two men and a woman. One of the men held the wheel, while the other stood ready to leap out and fasten the boat when the dock was reached. From where she crouched, it was impossible for Nancy Drew to see the faces of the three persons. Darkness was fast enveloping the river, but there was still sufficient light for her to make out the figures distinctly. As her eye fell again upon the girl, she gave a little start. There was something familiar about her, if only she could see her face. At the risk of being detected, Nancy continued to watch the oncoming motorboat. She heard a grating sound as the craft struck the dock. One of the men leaped out and made fast, while the other helped the girl to alight. He said something to her in a low tone, but Nancy could not distinguish the words. Leaving her two companions to attend to the motorboat, the girl started slowly up the path leading to the house. As she turned toward the tall brush, Nancy saw her face distinctly. The girl was Mary Mason. Having made the discovery, Nancy Drew ducked down into the weeds again, fearful lest she be discovered. To her discomfiture, Mary paused not six feet from where she was hiding and glanced back toward the dock. Bud, aren't you coming? she called in a harsh voice. This is no time for stalling. We've got plenty to do tonight. Chapter 18 During the Storm In a frenzy of excitement, Nancy Drew crouched in her hiding place. She dared not move, scarcely breathe, lest she agitate the bushes or make a noise which would attract attention to herself. Mary Mason stood with her back to the brush, but so close that Nancy could have reached out and touched her. As she waited in an agony of suspense, expecting at any moment to be discovered, a dozen questions raced through her mind. Who were Mary's companions, and what had they been doing with a luxurious motorboat? 
What did Mary mean by saying that there was plenty of work yet to be done that evening? It was all very puzzling, but Nancy Drew determined that she would unravel the mystery before she left Dockville. Her thoughts were rudely interrupted as Mary called again to her friends more sharply than before. Aren't you ever coming? Say, give a fellow a chance for his life, will you? came the rejoinder. We've got to tie up this boat unless you want it to go drifting off down the river. Mary muttered something under her breath, which Nancy did not catch. However, she waited for the two men. Presently, Nancy heard heavy footsteps on the path and knew that the men were approaching. Though she realized that it was a dangerous thing to do, curiosity overcame her, and she cautiously arose and peeped from her hiding place. Through the gathering gloom and mist, she beheld the two men. The younger, whom Mary had addressed as Bud, could not have been more than eighteen or nineteen years of age, but his face was that of the hardened criminal. He bore a marked resemblance to Mary, and Nancy correctly judged that they were brother and sister. She had never set eyes on him before. Why, he wasn't the man I followed to Winchester, she ruminated. I wonder who that other man could have been. Glancing up toward the older man who was following but up the path, she gave a little start of recognition. It was the stranger with the hooked nose. He must be a friend of Bud's and happened to be carrying his address, she reasoned. That's why I thought he may have been Mary's brother. In her excitement at the discovery, Nancy unwittingly agitated the leaves of a bush against which she was leaning. She quickly ducked out of sight, but to her horror, Mary had noticed the movement, slight as it was. What was that? she demanded tensely. I saw those bushes move. Only the wind, Bud answered indifferently. Don't be such a coward. I'm not a coward, Mary retorted hotly but this business we're mixed up in is beginning to give me the jim-jams. I'll lay off the fighting, the old man interposed bluntly. It's going to storm and we got to make our getaway. Yes, Mary agreed quickly. We must collect our things and escape before the river becomes rough. We'll split three ways and settle everything tonight, Bud added. Three ways, eh? The other man laughed harshly. Ha! I'll tell you I'll have more than a third of the swag. Don't you remember our agreement? Mary demanded sharply. What do I care for that? The man snarled unpleasantly. I furnished the boat. And who took all the risk? Mary countered angrily. Answer me that. I'll have two-thirds or I'll send you all to jail. Then you'll go with us. Not much, I won't. Tom Tozzle knows how to look out for himself. Ah, quit that arguing and come on, but interrupted. We'll settle this thing in the house. To Nancy Drew's disappointment, the three walked on up the path and disappeared inside the house. After a few minutes, Nancy came out from her hiding place, trembling with excitement. It's evident they're up to some shady business, she told herself, but of course I don't know whether they had a hand in the Lilac Inn mystery or not. If only I can find out. What she was to do next. Nancy Drew did not know. It would be dangerous to enter the old house, for if she were discovered, 
she would be entirely at the mercy of her captors. She guessed that the rooms were bare of furniture, and that would make the problem of finding a hiding place all but impossible. What should she do? While Nancy hesitated, the first drop of rain spattered down upon her hand. Glancing up, she saw that black clouds were swirling about overhead. There's going to be a terrible storm, she thought nervously. Nancy Drew was by nature a brave girl, but as she glanced up at the leaden sky, she was more than a little disturbed. Almost in an instant it had grown dark, and the blackness seemed to have a terrifying quality. The air was warm and heavy. An oppressive quiet was broken only by the moan and rush of the river. Suddenly, there was a vivid flash of lightning, followed by a violent clap of thunder. The clouds seemed to open wide, pouring down a torrent of rain. Oh! Nancy gasped, momentarily blinded. She could not see a foot ahead of her, but she remembered an old shed which she had noticed at the rear of the house. In desperation, she groped her way toward it. A second flash of lightning showed her the way. Reaching the door, she slipped inside gratefully and shook the water from her dress and hair. Just my luck, the storm had to break at this very minute, she thought dismally. I hope it won't last long. She glanced anxiously toward the house, which Mary and her companions had entered. Through the rain, she could see a dim light burning in one of the rooms. Probably at this very moment, the three were dividing the loot they had mentioned. I wonder if they meant the Crandall jewels, she asked herself. The thought drove her to action. Another impatient glance at the sky convinced her that the storm was likely to last for several hours. If she waited until the rain ceased, she would learn nothing. I don't mind getting wet, she told herself grimly. Nevertheless, as she stepped out into the pouring rain, a dazzling flash of lightning caused her to cringe. Resolutely continuing again, she crept around to the north side of the house. There, to her relief, she saw a broad piazza, partially sheltered by vines. Thoroughly soaked, she reached the porch and tiptoed across to a window, which she could see gleaming in the dark. To her disappointment, she found that the blind had been pulled down, and she could not see inside. She could hear a faint murmur of voices, but it was impossible to distinguish a word. It was tantalizing to be so close, and yet not to be able to learn a thing she wanted to know. Frantically, she glanced about. She must find a way to enter the house. Thinking that she might gain admittance through a cellar window, she started away from the porch. Just at that moment, another flash of lightning made everything as bright as day, and in that brief instant of illumination, she saw another window at the east end of the piazza. Softly retracing her steps, she reached the ledge and listened. She could still hear a low murmur of voices from inside, so it was evident that she had not been seen. Cautiously, she tried the window. At first, it offered stubborn resistance, 
but as she applied more strength, it slowly gave, accompanied by an alarming creak. I'll be caught if I don't watch out, Nancy thought. She waited an instant, but as there was no unusual sound from the interior of the house, she raised the window until it was high enough to admit her body. Thrusting her head and shoulders through the opening, she peered inside. At first, she could see nothing, but in a moment, she was able to make out several rows of empty shelves along the walls of the room. Evidently, she was looking into an old storeroom. Here it goes, Nancy decided rashly. She swung herself through the opening and was about to lower herself to the floor of the storeroom when she thought of her shoes. They were soaking wet as well as muddy. If she walked across the floor, she would leave a trail. No use to court disaster, she chuckled. Quickly removing her shoes, she held them in one hand and dropped lightly to the floor below. Creeping to the far wall, she listened. To her satisfaction, she found that she could hear what was being said in the next room. Evidently, the three were engaged in a heated argument. I tell you, we've got to settle up tonight and get out while the getting is good, she heard Tom Tozzle say. Bud and I will never settle on your terms, Mary replied angrily. You want too much. Tom made a response which Nancy did not catch, but the next moment she was startled to hear Mary say, Oh, what a vivid flash of lightning. That must have come down close. I wonder if all the windows are down. Nancy glanced guiltily toward the storeroom window. In the excitement of entering the house, she had forgotten to close it. Before she could make a move, she heard Mary say, I can hear water dripping somewhere. I think the storeroom window must be open. Wait a minute and I'll shut it. Desperately, Nancy glanced about for a hiding place. She was convinced that her own carelessness had trapped her. Had there been time, she would have vaulted out the window but it was too late for that. Her only hope was an empty packing case. Hastily climbing into it, she flattened herself against the bottom, just as Mary Mason opened the door. Chapter 19 In the Storeroom Carrying an oil lamp, Mary Mason entered the storeroom and with only a casual glance, went directly to the window. As she passed the packing box, Nancy held her breath, fearful lest she be discovered. I don't remember leaving a window open, the girl muttered to herself. Why, the floor is sopping wet. Hearing the words, Nancy was assailed with a new fear. Undoubtedly, in moving about the storeroom, her clothes had dripped water, leaving a trail wherever she had gone. If Mary were at all observant, she would realize that an intruder had entered the house. But evidently, the girl was too intent upon closing the window to notice the floor particularly, for Nancy heard her working with the fastening. Before she could accomplish her task, a sudden flash of lightning caused her to give a little scream of terror. Recoiling, she dropped the window down so quickly that the glass rattled. Say! Don't make so much noise, an impatient voice called from the next room. Do you want to have the police down on us? I suppose you want me to be struck by lightning, Mary retorted crossly. 
Let that window go, Tom Tozzle ordered. We've got to get away from here. I'm coming, the girl responded sullenly. To Nancy Drew's relief, she left the storeroom without so much as a glance toward the packing box. That was a close shave, Nancy assured herself grimly as she climbed from her hiding place. It was lucky I heard her coming. Moving softly across the floor, she again took up her position near the door. Already she had heard enough to be convinced that Mary and her friends were mixed up in an underhand scheme, and she intended to learn everything there was to learn. If only Mary would say something which would definitely prove that she had stolen the Crandall jewels or knew something of their disappearance. Peeping through a tiny crack in the door, she saw the girl seat herself at a table opposite the two men. Tom Tozzle sat facing the storeroom, and Nancy could see the calculating, greedy look in his eyes. Now, Mary, you might as well be reasonable, she heard him say in a wheedling tone. It don't get us nowhere to argue. I wouldn't ask for two-thirds if I hadn't earned it. That's a good joke, Mary returned scathingly. I could have pulled off this job better alone. Yeah? And how would you have got rid of the stuff? Just answer me that. I don't see that you've done so well yourself, Tom Tozzle. You wasted a whole day at Winchester and didn't come home with a cent of money. I was followed, the man whined. I'd have been a fool to have gone direct to the pawn shop. I'd have been arrested with the goods. Who followed you? Mary demanded sharply. A girl. Never saw her before, but she looked like a detective. Afraid of a girl, Mary returned scornfully. It was probably your imagination anyway. Tom may be right, Bud interposed. I hear the detectives are getting pretty active, especially that girl of Carson Drew's. How I hate her, Mary spit out vehemently. She always sticks her nose into business that doesn't concern her. Well, she better not come fooling around me. The quicker I get out of this town, the safer I'll feel, Bud said uneasily. Before we stir from this house, we're going to have an understanding about shares, Mary replied firmly. She turned to Tom Tozzle. What did you do with the jewels you took with you to Winchester? I put them back in the secret compartment of the boat. I would have pawned them, but I was afraid to after that girl followed me. Have we enough money to make our getaway? Sure. That last jewel brought a tidy sum. The money we got from it ought to take us a long way from here. Everything's settled except how we're to divide. Why worry about that now? Bud demanded. As long as most of the jewels haven't been converted into cash... I'll not stir a step until it's definitely understood that we're to share equally, Mary interrupted angrily. Why, I'm the one that should have two-thirds and not you, Tom Tozzle. If it hadn't have been for me, you two wouldn't have known about the jewels. You sort of stumbled onto them accidentally yourself, Tom reminded her unpleasantly. I wouldn't call it accident. I went to Lilac Inn to ask for work in the kitchen, and as I walked past the dining room window... I saw Mrs. Willoughby and her friend sitting there. Mary chuckled evilly at the recollection. Ha! <laughs> I noticed that big handbag of hers lying on the table. And from the way she was acting, 
I knew right off there was something valuable in it. At this point, the girl lowered her voice so that it was difficult for Nancy to hear. Determined to find out whether or not Mary was the one who had stolen the jewels, she daringly opened the door a trifle wider. She thought there was no particular danger, for the room was but dimly lighted. I was wishing I could get my hands on that bag, Mary continued, growing more boastful, when suddenly there was a big smash-up down the road. Two automobiles had run together. Someone in the dining room yelled that there had been a bad accident. Everyone got excited and began running around. This gave me the chance I wanted. When Mrs. Willoughby turned her back, I just reached my hand through the window and took the bag. It was the easiest job I ever pulled. You might have been caught, Bud said to her. Not Mary Mason. I'm too smart for the police. I just hid behind the lilac bushes until the excitement had died down. It sure was fun to hear Mrs. Willoughby carrying on in the dining room and accusing everyone. When I saw my chance, I slipped away without being seen and walked to River Heights. Neat, wasn't it? It was clever work, Bud admitted. Forty thousand dollars worth of jewels in one haul. Why, that's more than you and Tom Tozzle have brought in together in the last six years. Now we've got enough to put us all on easy street. If Tom has gumption enough to convert the jewels into cash. I'll get rid of them in a few days, the man promised. Give me time. I can't walk into the first pawn shop I come to and dump $40,000 worth of jewels on the counter. Not unless we all want to land behind the bars. Now, if we can get to Birmingham, I know a fence there who will turn the trick for us. How far is Birmingham? Mary demanded. Less than a hundred miles. We can make it easy tonight. In this storm? Sure, Tom Tozzle laughed. I ain't been a river man for nothing. I know every crook and turn of this old stream. We better get started, too, because the storm's getting worse every minute. Will you agree about the shares? Tom Tozzle hesitated, and Nancy saw him study the girl craftily. Evidently, he realized he could not hope to gain his point, for he shrugged his shoulders indifferently. Have it your own way. Nancy decided to wait for no more. She had heard enough to prove that Mary Mason had stolen the Crandall jewels and that her brother and Tom Tozzle were Confederates. From their conversation, she gathered that they were all seasoned criminals and had engaged in a number of questionable deals. This will clear Mrs. Willoughby and every other person who has been under suspicion, she thought with satisfaction. I must get away from here as quickly as I can and bring the police. But in planning her escape from the old house, Nancy Drew had waited too long. In her eagerness to hear everything Mary and her friends were saying, she had opened the storeroom door a trifle farther than she had intended. Now, as she prepared to make her escape, the conference between the three Confederates abruptly ended. Bud Mason pushed back his chair and arose. Alarmed, Nancy shrank back deeper into the shadow. She thought that if she remained motionless, she would not be seen, for the oil lamp on the table did not illuminate the corners of the room. Undoubtedly, she would have escaped detection, 
had not fate played a most unkind trick upon her. At the very instant that Bud Mason turned his face toward the storeroom door, a vivid flash of lightning zigzagged across the sky. It revealed every detail of the room and disclosed poor Nancy, who crouched on the floor. Who's there? Buddy called sharply. Panic took possession of Nancy. For a moment she could not move, so great was her fright. Then, with the speed born of desperation, she bolted for the window. Reaching the ledge, she swung herself upward, but her rough hand grasped her from behind. Oh, no, you don't, young lady, a harsh voice hissed into her ear. Before she could cry out for help, her arms were caught in a vice-like grip and jerked behind her back. A handkerchief was stuffed into her mouth. She struggled frantically, kicking viciously at her captor, but it availed her nothing. The gag in her mouth choked her, and she began to gasp for breath. Then things went black before her eyes, and she knew no more. Chapter 20 A Prisoner When Nancy Drew opened her eyes, it was to realize that Mary Mason and the two men were bending over her. She was lying on an old couch, and the gag had been removed from her mouth so that she could breathe more easily. She's coming around, but observed in relief as Nancy regained consciousness. I thought for a minute I'd strangled her. It would have been better for us if you had, Mary said coldly. We're in a mess, that's sure, Tom Tuzzle agreed, peering intently down on Nancy. She's the one that followed me to Winchester. And you don't know who she is? Mary demanded. Never set eyes on her until today. Then I'll tell you. Nancy Drew, the daughter of Carson Drew, the famous criminal lawyer. Does that signify anything to you? She's been listening to everything we said, Tom Tuzzle muttered unpleasantly. He bent down and grasped Nancy roughly by the arm. What did you hear? Out with it. Nancy knew that it would be useless to pretend she had not overheard the plot, so she boldly defied her captors. I heard enough to put you all behind bars, she informed them daringly. Not much you won't, Mary cried. After we get through with you, you'll not go snooping into other folks' business again. She turned to her brother and Tom Tozzle. We've got to get rid of her. If we let her go, she'll tell the police everything she knows and they'll be down on us in a jiffy. That's right, Tom agreed. We'll see that she doesn't get away. Not on your life, Bud put in. Nancy realized that the situation was desperate. From what she knew of the character of her captors, she did not doubt that they would be merciless in their treatment of her. If only she could think of a way to escape. She must work quickly, or it would be too late. Suddenly, she remembered a simple trick, which her father had told her was used frequently by detectives. It was an old device, but she thought it might work in this instance. At least it was worth trying. Half rising from the couch, she riveted her eyes on a spot directly behind her captors and gave a low cry of mingled surprise and joy, thinking that Nancy must have left a helper outside who had come to her aid. The three Confederates wheeled about. Like a flash, Nancy Drew was up from the couch. She dashed across the room toward the door. 
With a cry of rage, the three were after her. Don't let her get away, Mary screamed. Nancy grasped the handle of the door, but at the same instant, Tom Tozzle reached out and caught her by the arm, giving her wrist a cruel turn. None of your tricks, he snarled. Tie her up before she tries to get away again, Mary directed. I'll get a rope, Bud cried. He ran into the storeroom and returned a moment later with a heavy cord. Nancy's hands were then tied securely behind her, and she was again flung down on the couch. I guess you'll not get away this time, Tom laughed evilly. As Nancy felt the cord cutting into her flesh, she realized that her chances of escape were slim indeed. Tom Tozzle had done his work far better than had Stumpy Dowd, the rascal who had once imprisoned her in an abandoned cottage. Then, by dexterous twisting and squirming, she had managed to loose her bonds. But this time, there was no chance of doing this. The cords would not give an inch, and the slightest movement on her part brought excruciating pain. What are we going to do with her? Bud demanded practically. Leave her here and let her starve, Mary suggested cruelly. It would serve her right for meddling. Somebody might find her, Tom objected. Then she'd be sure to set the police after us. Ah, that's so, Mary agreed. Maybe we'd better take her along in the motorboat. She'll be a nuisance, Bud protested. We can drop her off at an old cabin I know of, Tom put in. No one would think of looking there for her. How far is it from here? Mary asked. About forty miles. Maybe that's as good a place as any, the girl admitted after a moment's thought. Sure it is, Tom urged. We can leave her there till we decide what to do with her. If we play our cards right, there ought to be some extra money in this deal, Bud observed slyly. Old man Drew should come across heavily to save his only daughter. My father won't pay you a cent, Nancy broke in furiously. He'll track you down and see that you all land in prison. Not much he won't, Tom sneered. He'll be only too glad to fork over the cash when we get through with him. Nancy subsided, for she realized that she was only wasting breath by arguing with her captors. How worried her father would be when he learned that she had been kidnapped. She did not doubt that in his anxiety for her safety, he would turn over any sum demanded by the conspirators. She felt sick at heart to think that she had brought so much trouble upon her father. If only she had used more caution and had brought the police with her when she visited the Mason house. Well, let's be getting out of here, Tom Tuzzle said to his two companions. It's late. We ought to be on our way. Mary Mason glanced anxiously out of the window. It's storming worse than ever she announced uneasily. I don't like to start now. But we've got to, Bud insisted. But the river's so high, I can hear the water pounding against the dock. It's going to storm all night, Tom broke in. It won't do us no good to wait. I suppose you're right, Mary gave in reluctantly. I'll get the things ready. She went to the kitchen, returning in about ten minutes, with a package, which she dropped down on the table. There's enough food there to last us a couple of days if necessary, she informed her companions. Then I guess everything's ready, Tom said with a critical glance about the room. The motorboat's loaded with gas and it's raring to go. She'll ride this storm like a bird.
Now that the time of departure had arrived, Tom Tozzle was in high spirits. The storm held no terrors for the veteran riverman, but rather offered a challenge which he was eager to accept. Mary and Bud Mason did not share his enthusiasm for the adventure. As Nancy Drew thought of what was in store for her, she shuddered. She knew that it was dangerous to attempt a journey on the river during the storm, and the reckless gleam in Tom Tozzle's eye told her that he would probably prove a foolhardy pilot. Her unpleasant meditation was rudely interrupted as Bud grasped her by the shoulders and pulled her to her feet. Hold on there, Tom cried. We can't take her that way. She'll let out a yell the minute she gets outside. Gag her, Mary directed. Oh, please don't put that thing in my mouth again, Nancy pleaded. I promise I won't cry out for help. Gag her, the girl repeated coldly, paying not the slightest attention to Nancy's plea. Tom Tozzle brought out the hateful gag from his pocket, and in spite of Nancy's vigorous protests, it was jammed down her throat. Don't put it in too tight, Bud warned. We don't want her to pass out on us again. Tom Tozzle went to the back door and looked out into the storm. The coast is clear, he announced. Not a person in sight. We can make it now. A heavy shawl was thrown over Nancy, and the two men grasped her firmly by the arms. She was half dragged, half carried, down the steep path which led to the river. Reaching the dock, she was shoved unceremoniously into the motorboat. The others climbed in. Tom started the motor, and Bud cast off the rope. Nancy heard the angry roar of the river as the boat moved slowly away from the dock. The dreadful journey had begun. This is your host, Catherine Lopez Luker. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Stories Come to Life. Be sure to join us next time when we continue to listen to Nancy Drew and the mystery at Lilac Inn. You can find a link to our podcast on the Marshall Public Library webpage, www.marshallpl.org. I'll talk to you again soon.